you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. We're your hosts, Andrew Paul. And I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to give back to Edmonton's community. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well-endowed. Andrew, how many times a day do you search the internet? Well, at ECF, as a communications advisor, I oversee our social media and websites, so at least five times a day, I would say. <laughs> Just five? Uh, somewhere <laughs> upwards of dozens, dozens to a hundred times a day, for sure. <laughs> so uh, one thing I do notice when I'm on Google, which is sort of the, the only search engine, are there other ones out there? Probably. I don't think I've used a different one in like... Sometimes I use Bing because that's what comes up on the computer, but... Yeah, one thing I always find interesting that always gets me in the search results is those sneaky little Google ads that usually appear first in the search results. Sometimes that's useful uh, and what I'm looking for. And other times I'm like, why is this here? (laughs) So that's the kind of thing our next guest, Dr. Sophia Noble, has been researching. Specifically, she's been looking at race and gender bias in search engines for her latest book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Right, and Sefia will be coming to the Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series on February 20th to talk about her book. And if her name sounds familiar, you might have heard her speaking about technology bias on the BBC in Wired or CNN International, just in a few places who have called upon her expertise. Sefia has also written a number of peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, and she serves as an associate editor for the Journal of Critical Library and Information Studies and as a co-editor of the Commentary and Criticism section of the Journal of Feminist Media Studies. Of course, there's much more we could say about Safia and her research. She covers many interesting topics, but for now we're going to focus back in on algorithms of oppression. Lisa Pruden caught up with Safia over the phone to talk about her book and upcoming presentation. And because it's the internet and you can't talk about the internet without getting into some risque territory, please be advised that there are some adult themes discussed in the following story. Let's take a listen. I'm Safia Noble. I'm an associate professor at UCLA and a visiting professor to the University of Southern California Annenberg School of Communication. Yeah, so you'll be coming to Edmonton on February 20th for the Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series. And you'll be discussing your latest book, Algorithms of Oppression. Would you mind, just to offer some context for our listeners, letting us know what your book covers and why you decided to do this research. Sure. Well, in many ways, I think the idea of algorithms and the role they play in our society and certainly in our information landscape seems quite opaque. Many people either don't know the role that algorithms are playing in uh, helping us find information or leading us to misinformation or disinformation. Um, If anything, algorithms and artificial intelligence are kind of widely celebrated as more fair or uh, more reliable tools to help us get good information in society. 
And so this book really starts with kind of about a six-year journey of collecting search results around a variety of different, you know, people, communities, ideas, uh, notions, and um, seeing the kinds of misrepresentative information that big commercial search engines like Google provide. And then, you know, kind of thinking through or, or looking at um, what's at stake for uh, society when we're kind of hyper-reliant upon search engines and uh, what's at stake when public libraries, universities, public education are defunded and we become uh, ever more reliant upon kind of big commercial media platforms for our information. So the book is really kind of a broad exploration of these topics. And I find that um, many people are really interested in these topics, and it's not quite so complicated to uh, understand when we, because uh, most of us have a lot of uh, experience with using a search engine and coming across things that we really didn't expect to get. Absolutely. Yeah, so I thought that might be a good place to start, too, was as you said, we all use search engines every day. So I'm at my computer and I open up the Google search because that is, of course, the leading company for search technology. Um, as I'm about to enter my query, what happens behind the scenes that we don't see? Well, one of the main things that I think people who use commercial search engines don't understand is that they're they're engaging with an advertising platform. The primary way that a search engine makes money and stays in business, uh, any of these platforms, including other types of information resources that people might think of like uh, social media where they're you know, looking for news and other kinds of information, um, all of these are driven by advertising. And yet what's not clear uh, is that there's a whole series of kind of optimization techniques that are available either to industries, uh, companies, or, or people, institutions that have a lot of money and are able to ensure that the things you're looking for line up with their products, services, or ideas. Um, and they also may not realize that there is a whole kind of gray industry, gray market industry of companies, advertising uh, companies, boutique agencies, uh, individual consultants who are trying to optimize content so that we find it. So what we think is happening is we're going to uh, a kind of a white page. So let's say we're talking about Google and uh, we can't see kind of any of these technical mechanics of how search is working. And what we often think, and this is what the research shows, is that the public thinks they're just going to get the, the very best information or, or information that's been curated or that a search engine has kind of gone through the process of vetting uh, information to make sure that the very best, most reliable and credible information is what we'll find on the first page and, and even in the first link. And oftentimes that's not what's happening. We often get information that's popular but not, might not be credible or reliable. Uh, or we might get information that leads us to a company or products or services or an industry that has kind of a monopoly control over 
uh, the keywords that we're looking for. So these are the kinds of things that I really try to parse in the book, just making it easy for people to understand what search engines are and why they might uh, have reason to, you know, cross-check those kinds of things they find or maybe question the veracity of what they find. While I was preparing for this interview, I had kind of been thinking about my own use of search engines as really... I'm a really casual user and I I really take it for granted um, to the point where it's really almost frivolous. And I think that has major consequences. But hearing you speak, I'm also now understanding that there's um, the other bigger side beyond the individual users. There's also like our institutions of governance and uh, schools, governments and companies that are also relying on this same search technology to guide their decision-making. So the stakes seem pretty high. Yeah, no, I think you're onto it. I mean, one of the challenges is that all of us use search engines. And as you said, many people, you know, many of us use them every day. And when we're looking for banal information, you know, what's the weather today? Or um, where's the closest coffee shop to me? Or what are the hours to the post office, right? We often are led to pretty factually correct information for certain types of things. But we, we don't stop at the banal in our use of search engines. In fact, many institutions and many processes are very reliant upon search engines to provide them with facts. And so, uh, for example, if lawyers are looking up information about, let's say, someone they are attempting to prosecute. Um, They might take information that exists or that's found in a search engine as a matter of fact or truth, even though we know there are hundreds of thousands of takedown requests of misinformation that exists on the web about people. Uh, So, you know, that our institutions and our processes, whether they're legal or otherwise, we, we know, for example, that colleges and universities uh, very much use search engines and social media checks in order to help advise them on making admission decisions for students into universities. So a lot is at stake when we think about misrepresentative information uh, kind of you know, in these systems and on the Internet. And um, it does have real-world implications. And I think those are the kinds of things that the public really just has not yet fully come to appreciate. Uh, And, you know, with a whole generation right now that has documented their lives online, uh, I think we still have yet to see what the long-term repercussions will be of, let's say, putting your every thought, you know, ill-formed when you're a young person and then running for Congress or Senate uh, or trying to be involved in public life or having a professional life, you know, 30 years from then. So uh, these are the kinds of things that I really raised in the book that as just kind of, a, again, a, a, a whole kind of host of issues that might help us put some of these technologies in a, in a better and more proper context. And certainly um, how we might think about public policy or regulation and consumer protection with some of these technologies. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on what we might do for action and policy um, maybe a little bit later, but I wanted to also bring in 
Um, another idea that I'm having trouble fully wrapping my head around on this topic, and that is the connection to our history of systemic oppression and how that history is continuing within that search bar. Okay, well, let me start with kind of the origin story to the study that I started around uh, these kind of concerns that we're talking about. The first keywords that really uh, kind of kicked off and launched, you know, a more rigorous investigation were my own searching on the keywords black girls. And at the time when I started uh, studying search engine results back in 2009, all the way up through uh, kind of the fall of 2012, when you did a search on the keywords black girls, and of course I was thinking about my daughter and my nieces and, uh, you know, what, what it would mean when black girls themselves use search engines to find out information about what other black girls were doing or kind of things that might be of interest to black girls. And at the time, for many years, the primary information on the first page of Google search results was pornography or sexually explicit, very, very sexually explicit content. And you didn't have to add the words porn and you didn't have to add the words sex. Uh, black girls just were synonymous with pornography or sexualization. And the same is true for Asian girls and for Latina girls. And this is really kind of what opened up. Uh, and, you know, the book kind of opens up with these examples and, and then linking that to our long history of kind of racist and sexist stereotyping of women and girls of color. Uh, this is a particularly a profound phenomenon in the United States, but it extends beyond the United States, where kind of sexual, sexualized stereotyping of women of color and girls of color has been used as a rationale in the distribution of resources in our society. Um, for example, the whole stereotype of black women and girls as being kind of uh, highly sexualized is a stereotype that kind of originated with the abolition of slavery and the uh, kind of abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, where the reproduction of the enslaved labor force in the U.S. Uh, could only happen when black women had children. Um, their children would be born into enslavement. And so um, the society, of course, needed and the ruling class needed a stereotype called black women love to have children because they're deeply sexual, um, as a way to justify the reproduction of the enslaved labor force. So we can look at a lot of different racist and sexist stereotypes in our society, and they all have an origin story that often is directly tied to uh, you know, maintaining oppression or maintaining some type of social control over a group. And so to see that reproduced in a search engine where, again, the leading stereotype and idea about black girls is that they are, in fact, uh, pornographic objects, uh, you know, far predates the, the Internet, but it's tied certainly to these histories that uh, get reproduced in our, in our kind of digital technologies. And that's one of the things that I really try to explore is, you know, why does that happen? What's at stake when that happens? And... It's not, it extends, you know, beyond just kind of racialized groups. I mean, even more basic gender stereotyping 
happens, for example, I show other people, of course, have talked about this too. You know, when we do a Google image search on doctors, you're almost exclusively led to pictures or photos of white men who are, you know, who are medical doctors rather than even professors, right, or PhDs. So the kind of conceptions of ideas uh, in search engines is also very important because we know that students uh, as a very a primary group, but also parents, are really reliant upon search engines to kind of answer questions and to send uh, people to to find answers when there isn't a, you know, a guide, a librarian, a parent, an adult, or someone who can uh, have expertise to help unpack these ideas. So high stakes might even be an understatement for earlier discussion. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right because listen, um, you know, in the in the real world that we're living in right now, where we have packed classrooms, teachers who are under resourced, and schools that are understaffed and under resourced, underfunded, um, the stopgap has become the internet uh, to to fill a lot of of gaps. And um, I can't tell you how many teachers I talk to after I show them so many examples from my research, I and mean, they just sit stunned. And I say, you know, just stop telling your, your students to just Google it. Send them to the library. You know, find other ways to create a, a, a longer, deeper, more nuanced kind of inquiry and a search for answers and evidence than just going to a search engine. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of knowledge that exists in the world that can't be found in 0.03 seconds. Uh, there are things that we need to study for some time and that we need deep expertise on, and a, a hit on a website is not going to be the answer. With this incredible impact that this technology is having, and also with our recent, though not entirely surprising, discovery that the internet is still somewhat of a wild, wild west, there seems to be very little accountability for search and social media platforms. Um, and there's not, until recently, didn't seem to be a lot of questions asked around ethical concerns like privacy or social justice and equity, or even who gets to have influence. What actions might we consider as we move forward together? Well, I think one of the things we can do as a public is become much more educated about what's at stake in a democracy that is uh, increasingly flooded with disinformation and where good information resources and high, you know kind of literacy building is being undermined by digital media platforms. So I think that's a, a really important uh, dimension. And one of the things that I often say even to lawmakers is uh, and their staff is that you know you can't on one hand, try to regulate the tech industry, but also simultaneously defund education, defund public media, defund public libraries that would stand as a kind of in opposition, uh, right? Because they operate with different values. I mean, they don't have the profit imperative driving them. They have a different set of values, like, you know, providing credible, reliable information to the public, like that as a mission, rather than needing to maximize shareholder value. So I think those are, you know, we need to be really aware of why public libraries and public, you know, funded information resources are really important. But, you know, the other part of this is I think, you know, our information environment 
is just as important as other parts of our physical environment. And part of the reason that we regulate, for example, uh, that companies can't just pollute our water supply is because we know it will kill us, uh, right? Or it will ruin our communities. It will ruin our quality of life. Um, We don't let pharmaceutical companies just like, you know, we don't let a few guys in in an office in a strip mall, you know, make up a drug and just put it out in CVS with mass distribution and say, like, oh, it'll, it'll work itself out. But, of course, that's what happens in the tech industry all the time is a few people get together with a lot of money and the ability to, to distribute any kind of content, and there's no oversight about whether that kind of pollutes our information environment and, of course, what's at stake. And I think, you know, there are many people who are writing uh, great books right now, many scholars who are studying this, uh, these phenomena and how they, for example, undermine democratic governments and societies. And, and uh, so those things are important. And I think we need a reframe and a different set of ideas and notions about whether these platforms are making us more literate and more connected and uh, more empathic and building better communities and society or whether they are fracturing and, uh, again, disorganizing us and causing social harm. I guess causing social harm is the best way that I can kind of articulate that. So we are nearing the end of our time together, uh, but before we close, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or uh, to get out there that, that we didn't get to? Well, I would just say that, you know, the bigger questions when we pull back from the specifics of kind of the how algorithms work and, you know, whether we can tweak an algorithm or have an unbiased algorithm, which, you know, I think has started to get a lot of uh, play in people who are writing about technology right now. I mean, there's a, a an interesting kind of aspiration about having unbiased technology. Again, though, feeding into this idea that we can have technical solutions or that technology can kind of solve some of our social concerns uh, if we can just perfect it better. And I think, uh, you know, we're way past that uh, stage. And I I don't think that, you know, maybe that's the right set of aspirations. Um, You know, I often talk to people who work in the tech sector, and it's like, you know, there is no, you know, objective neutral place that these technologies will go. Rather, why don't we just decide the kinds of values that we want to have? Do we want to have a society that provides you know, and technology platforms that provide fair and equitable and diverse perspectives that fairly represent communities and people and ideas? And do we lean on uh, creating platforms that are doing that? Or are we just invested in kind of, you know, the bottom line? And those things are intention in Silicon Valley and major Silicon corridors. And I think, you know, the public at a minimum could double down on its public institutions and, and uh, you know, not cede so much space. So there, there's a role, I think, for all of us to play at an individual level and then certainly at a policy level around um, bolstering our democratic information institutions and really helping our, our communities to have um, good, high-quality information to make decisions on and to, to be educated with. And, you know, those are things that are, I think, about 
our own worldview and our philosophies about the kind of society we want to live on, live in. And those are great conversations and important conversations we need to be having today. That is such excellent food for thought. Thank you so much for sharing it. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. A big thanks to Dr. Sophia Noble for talking about her research on how search engines are still influenced by historical systems of oppression. Sophia will be in Edmonton on February 20th for the Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series. That's right. She'll be speaking about her latest book titled Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Her book is also available to borrow from the Edmonton Public Library. Sophia's research is not just limited to search engine ethics and racial and gender bias and algorithms. She also pursues topics like privacy and surveillance and sociocultural, economic and ethical implications of information in society and much more. So if you're curious to learn more about Safia's important research, you can check out her website at safiaunoble.com. She has a ton of great articles and interesting reads available there, and we'll be sure to have a link to her website in our show notes. And that's also where you'll find the link to buy tickets for her talk on February 20th. Don't miss it. And as you just heard, it's a really interesting topic. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you have time, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Those iTunes reviews are a big help. And we're also on Facebook at Well Endowed Podcast. Please swing by and say hello. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.